My name is Dr. Catherine Mannix. Welcome to Man Marking. We're asking, where's the talking lad? You only get into, out of the game where you put into it, Shelley. Mm -hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them, I didn't give anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. You regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Welcome to Man Marking, the podcast that uses football as a vehicle to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. Today, we're talking to Dr. Catherine Mannix. So um, I'm Catherine and I'm a retired palliative care consultant and that's somebody who looks after people with advanced illnesses, usually with a focus on getting the symptoms sorted out, but it does of course mean that you look after a lot of people towards the end of their lives as well. And I took early retirement to campaign for better public understanding of dying because I think people are unnecessarily terrified and I think the more people know the less they'll be afraid, the more they'll talk to each other about it, the more they'll be better prepared, the better they'll be able to live the last part of their lives and the better the people who are grieving them will be able to get into their bereavement. So today on the show, we are joined by Dan and Ant, as always. Fellas, how are we? Anyone want to go? <laughs> I was looking at Danny then going, go on, Danny, I'll go first. He normally, he normally speaks more than me, like, but yeah, well, no, I'm good. 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 I, I didn't want to uh, I didn't want to interrupt you because that's what I've a common common theme of mine. Um so I just didn't say anything. Um that's but yes. I'm well, Ryan. I'm well. How are you, mate? Good. It's a shame that we're um we're separated again today, but good to see your lovely faces on screen. I can see and November is going very well. Looks very seventies, very sexy, like it. Um feel like to dig it, man. Bit of a oh, you, I forgot you're doing it as well. Like, <laughs> um, we'll come on to yours next week, I think, Dan. And with any progress, right um, next year, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do. It. Can you do like a Movember, but like a a, a yearly one? Yeah, to grow on there, I think. Yeah, um, maybe try and use Sophie's like eyebrow pen or something. I might just cut some of my hair off and like like gorilla glue it onto my face, something like that. You've got, I mean, your, your head's growing back. Brilliantly, to tell you the truth, hasn't it? From that yeah. bloody summer sweet we had to, to I, now. I don't know. I feel like it's hogging all of the hair. The face is somewhat lacking. I can see a, bit, a bit of shadow there, though. A bit of shadow coming through. Um, just, just on the on the mustache. Um, a couple of new people in our work have started, and um, I keep meeting new people. And I started a couple of new meetings as well. And I'm like. I've got a mustache. I'm very aware that I've got a mustache. I'm like, they're gonna think I've I've got this permanently. So it's really awkward. I'm like, oh hi, how are you? And I'm like, oh god, don't don't look at me, please, don't look at me. You feel like obliged to mention it really early on. I haven't, um, but yeah, I, I just I look at their faces and I'm thinking they're they're thinking I'm a right weirdo here. <laughs> this mustache. You know what? I'm I'm all behind that being permanent. Yeah, I think yeah. it's good. Only mm. three, four months spell. I think it's great. See, I think it would fall into this uh, new thing that's happening at work as well, where I'm being called Tony. Um, I did a, start a, a meeting the other day, and uh, the first thing, they, they just did away with my name. 
and just called me Tony. <laughs> and I didn't have any chance to uh, to interrupt and be like, actually, my name's Anthony. You look more like a Tony with that, though, don't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. Like a Tony yeah. Scaramucci. Yeah. <laughs> well, as always, chaps, we, we have a, an opening question. Now, this isn't something I was aware of, so... As, as I ask it, maybe Danny, if I start with you, you can give it a little bit of context. Mm-hmm. So we're going to discuss Yuri Geller as the opening question. And the question's going to be, if you had a superpower you could only use in a football context, what would it be and how would you yield it? But before you answer that, can you maybe give a bit of a background as to why we're talking about Yuri Geller? Uh, yeah, so Yuri Geller, um, who everyone knows is the spoon-bending fella, um, which even now seems strange to say. But um, when Scotland won their penalty shootout to qualify for Euro 2020-21, to which we should congratulate Scotland. I know we have many Scottish listeners, so uh, big up to the Scottish peoples. Uh, But Yuri Geller put a video on Twitter uh, where he was kind of celebrating that win, obviously kind of harking back to the Euro 96 penalty helicopter mind-moving ball thing. I don't really know how you describe it. It's not like a thing that has a name. Um, but yeah, so he he got himself involved. And, and anyway, so it's Yuri Geller sort of thinks he has a superpower. Um, so that's where we've come to. My superpower will be to grow a moustache. I would like to grow a moustache. <laughs> um, that's it. That's all I've got. Next. Uh, right, okay. So mine's going to be used in a football context. I'd really like, you know, when the ball goes in the corner... And, um, you know, it's like last minute of the game and you're trying to get a goal back, a little equaliser. And for some reason, the defender always falls over, buys a free kick. The crowd goes absolutely nuts. He's fuming. The linesman's taking absolute pelters. He's waved his little flag in the air. And he's like, oh, that's a free kick to the to the defending team. And you're like, he hasn't touched him, ref. He hasn't touched him. Expletives come out. Everyone gets hot. And you're like, right. I would like to use the force in that instance. Go to the linesman and say, that is not a foul. That is a free kick to our way, our team. That is not a foul. This is not the foul you are looking for. That would be my... Can I just, um, can I just my, ask? My so, so what you want is the force, like off Star Wars. Absolutely. And of all the things you could use it for is to buy a free kick in the corner off the linesman. I think <laughs> why not I just think, get a penalty? Why not just say to the ref every time the ball's in the box, a penalty to us that you know to unrealistic. What, what's more, yeah, exactly. It's what, a superpower. You don't you don't take the mick with the force though. You you gotta you gotta you use do, it you, you do you do that. That's exactly what you use it for. You do take the mick until only, you take it off you. Right, that's enough of the force. <laughs> <laughs> only occasionally. Only occasionally. I mean a penalty would be too much. I think the more British way would be look, we, we just want a bit of an advantage. Mm, that's bit fair. My, my superpower, I think, would be to do the straightest of straight lines on VAR if it's a football context. <laughs> None of this, we think that's where the line goes. I could just have some sort of x-ray vision that, that just shows exactly where they are. And if it's Patrick Bamford's arm, then it's not offside. Yeah. Um, this is uh, obviously uh, an interview you were very keen to get done. Um, you made the introductions to, to Catherine. Can you sort of give the listeners a... a background to how the interview came about and why we wanted to speak to her yeah yeah absolutely so um i have a a a close family friend called vic who is a a big fan of dr Catherine mannix and has um she read a book uh, uh, with the end in mind a wee while ago um so that's kind of how i came to know who who Catherine mannix was um she's a, a palliative care 
doctor um worked with thousands of people over the years and then she wrote this book with the end in mind which was about us having a better understanding of dying and it just seemed like a really interesting sort of topic of discussion for us to be able to touch on and then in preparation for the interview i read that i read the book and there's loads on there about some of the things that we discuss in terms of men and, and how they open up about health and, and, and mental and physical health and stuff. And, and then obviously all the stuff about how we, we deal with death and then how that might help the grieving process for people and stuff. So I just thought it'd be absolutely perfect. And it, and it was, it was a really enjoyable evening with, uh, with Catherine. She was, she was excellent value and she's been there. Uh, she's been also excellent value on the Twitter sphere as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I really enjoyed it listening back and, and we always have a theme. Can you tell the listeners what the theme is? Yeah, uh, so this week's theme is learning to talk about death, dying, and mental health. Um, as Danny's touched on there, it's it's a big topic of the interview, and you know we we have a little look at how the two uh, subjects kind of interact with each other. You know, it's hard to talk about dying and, and death, and it's hard to talk about mental health at at, at certain times. And it's actually interesting uh, you're here in the interview where the situations, like social situations, that, that Catherine goes through, where someone's got one opinion and she's got the other and it's it's kind of hard to you know get away from from those opinions where we don't talk about these things and we we kind of just let everyone get on with it so it's a it's a theme that's it's quite you know it'll probably shock you when when you hear it and you read it and we put it out on our, our twitter and stuff but and you know you think oh that's gonna be a bit bit downbeat but it, it's actually quite a nice refreshing look at uh, how to deal with these things as well so it's a really fantastic interview and a, and, and a fantastic listen as well absolutely and um, and you're listening to my marking this is dr Catherine manick's interview <laughs> on your website Catherine, one of the, the big mantras that you talk about is about um it's about time we started giving each other permission to talk about death. When you say give permission to talk about death, what do you mean by that specifically? I think, I mean, we need to probably get off the fence about using euphemisms and not using the D words. And, you know, your granddad is dying. And, you've, you know, I've known your granddad since you and I were friends at primary school. And I can't ask you how your granddad is because I might upset you. Mm. You know that that's absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah. But but we all know that that happens, um, and we all know that people who are bereaved describe seeing people they know coming towards them and crossing the street to avoid them. And when you talk to people who've done that, those people say, "Oh, but I didn't want to upset her," so they haven't done it out of unkindness they've turned it out of not knowing that it is okay mm. to to just be there and not know what to say I, I think maybe partly we believe that we should be making it better when in fact really all we can do is say i'm here too this this is awful for you i'm really sorry it's so awful for you here i am one of the big things i wondered about was is that do you think that the the inability that people have to talk about death comes from that same almost uncomfortableness that stops people talking about people's mental health as well. Oh yeah, yeah. I think it's it's entirely the same thing. It's about oh, this is awkward, isn't it? And it's like I can see that you are suffering, 
and it might be you're suffering because somebody that you love is dying or it might be that you're suffering because you developed a a real phobia around this virus and you can't stop yourself washing your hands or you know I haven't had three words out of you for the last six months and I'm really worried about your mood um and I don't know what to say and because I don't know what to say I don't say anything where in fact maybe the best thing to say when we don't know what to say is mate I don't know what to say I'm worried about you do you want to talk about it and just invite people just just to say I'm available I will listen Mm -hmm. it's okay to not be okay about whatever this thing is that you're not okay about are you sad that your nana died you know I are you coping since you got made redundant you know I know I know it's very worrying and the the finances and all the rest of it I don't know that I can do anything that helps but I can listen do you want to go for a pint um do you want to go for a cup of tea because we have to be able to offer people non alcoholic alternatives <laughs> and, and that's important too isn't it because we do yeah. actually kind of socialize ourselves into drinking as a way of being alongside people who are having a difficult time as if in some way that might loosen us up which it might but it also might then become one of the coping strategies which is yeah. one of the healthiest ways to do it so just to be able to say to people i'm okay that you're not okay I think it's just knowing that, making people aware that if it's not, if you don't want to talk now, then that's sound. But if you want to talk in an hour, that's also fine. If you never yeah. want to talk about it, that's also fine. But like, I'm on to, like, I'm on to that you've, you've, there's something going on. And if you, you do want to, you need to express it in whatever way you need to express it, then I'm here whenever you need it. And I think that's yeah. all it needs. It's very, it, it's, it's, it's very simple in a lot of ways, isn't it? Well, what you're doing is you're naming it, aren't you? And so I think there are two reasons that we don't name it. One is that we're, like, worried that we're going to upset that person. And the other is that we're worried that there's somebody else there who's going to tell us off for upsetting that person. So I I can remember saying to uh, somebody who I'd known for a long time, worked with very closely, was very dear to me, who was back at work after a bereavement, um, in front of another colleague who worked with us both but hadn't worked with us both for as long who probably knew that we knew each other very well but anyway so I, I said to this this colleague you know it's really lovely to have you back I was so so sorry to hear that your dad died and she said yeah uh, I said you know ready to listen if you want to talk ready to just make tea if that's the right thing just you know Play it the way you want to play it, and she said, "Yeah, thank you very much." And if I if I if I do want to talk, I definitely will let you know. Okay, what's the order for today? What's the order of play? So we discussed what needed doing, and then then she said, "Okay, so we're going to have to go out across the car park. So I'm just going to go and get my coat." And as she disappeared out the door, this other colleague said, "I cannot believe that you said the word died <laughs> in front of you." <laughs> and so there's this third party policing of it's like the thought police we're telling you don't mention mental health don't mention death don't mention you know and and it's because we can't say it it's almost like you know when you when you 
in a car bump with somebody you not to say you're sorry because it's like you're admitting liability because it's all yeah. your fault <laughs> yeah it, it's almost like we're taking that into everyday life isn't it so it's it there's that kind of magical thinking that if you talk about it you'll make it happen if you talk about it you'll make it worse so people don't talk about sick people they don't talk about dying people they don't talk about suicide oh my god he's depressed don't mention suicide you'll give him an idea mm. anybody who's ever been profoundly depressed will be able to tell you exactly what their plan was yeah. for suicide that like, you, know, you don't need somebody to give you an idea if you, it's already in your head it's a relief to have somebody actually say the word out loud and if it's not in your head it's a relief to be able to say to them, do you know what, things are bad, but I don't feel that bad. And that's a really important thing to be able to discuss. So it, it, just in the same way, really, that sadly, no matter how much I talk about winning the lottery, it probably won't make me win the lottery. And talking about sex won't make people get pregnant. Talking about dying isn't going to make anybody die. It's completely safe. I suppose partly there is some language that we need to be careful with. So it's interesting that we're, we're moving in a helpful way now to talking about people dying by suicide rather than committing suicide like yeah. you commit a crime and i think that's really important and consoling for families because people who die by suicide die of of an emotional disorder that is beyond their capacity to you know control it as getting covid that may or may not kill you you know it's not it's not a weakness in you, is it? Mm. It's not that you didn't fight hard enough. So uh, generally, I really hate that kind of battle metaphor that people use about any sort of illness, battling with depression, battling with cancer. Uh, you know, oh, they lost their long battle with cancer. No, they bloody well didn't. Mm. They did not lose. They won a fantastic way of living alongside that cancer on their own terms for a length of time. And at the end of that, they died because, do you know what everybody does in the yeah. end? My mum has got uh, OCD and she had um, depression when we were um, when we were children. And then she ran a, an OCD support group. So we would have um, a lot of uh, people with OCD around in, in, in our house quite a lot. Yeah. Some of which, obviously, by the very nature, got up to some quite strange behaviour, which looked quite odd when we were about 10. Um and I used to interrupt most of the meetings because I was absolutely desperate for attention. Um, purely just, <laughs> not because I wasn't getting enough, just because I've got this need to be the centre of attention most of the time. <laughs> um, but we, but so we grew up around people having different sort of, you know, problems and issues yeah. that they're dealing with. And, and we were always taught that, you know, it, it, you know, it's just one of them things that it's, people have just got, Sometimes people just have a form of the chemical imbalance, sort of things develop, and it doesn't make them any less of a person. But it does strike you that a lot of the time that people are marginalised because they've got either physical or mental illnesses. Yeah, I mean it is true, isn't it? And you know, as somebody who's spent our lifetime treating people with physical illnesses, and then then having my cognitive therapy practice as well, so it, emotional distress too. I was completely blindsided by an episode of depression in 2011. And I think the last person who realised that I was sick was me. <laughs> and so many people were so concerned. Um, but I was fine. I was absolutely fine. No, I'm fine. Yeah. Because somehow 
it's hard to notice the little change and the little change and the little change. And it was one, one morning I got up and I couldn't choose a pair of socks. Like not one pair of socks in the drawer was going to be soft enough and comfortable enough <laughs> to work, to go to, to, to go to work. And I just sat on the floor and I couldn't get dressed because I couldn't choose a pair of socks. And at last, now all those people who've been waiting for me to say, I think I need some help. We're all there to say, okay, okay, you. Um, do you want to sit on the floor for that cup of tea or do you want to come sit downstairs for the cup of tea? Because after the cup of tea, we're going to go and talk to the doctor, aren't we? Yeah, I think we probably are. And even, even at the doctors, doing the questionnaire that I gave my patients every week on the doctor's phone, ticking the boxes. And halfway through this questionnaire, I thought, oh, this isn't good. If I don't change some of my answers now, she's going to sign me off work. Mm -hmm. um, I, and I, I can remember sitting in the chair thinking, am I going to lie? Or am I actually going to tell the truth on this questionnaire? And no, actually, I, I, need, I need to do this properly. And I think I was very, very fortunate because I got almost full marks on the questionnaire, which is which is exactly what you don't want <laughs> to get. Um, and which the must only odd for someone who's honestly, a lot it was of just <laughs> and, and, and as I'm sitting there looking at it, and then and I knew the question that was going to be at the end was about suicidal thoughts, and I can remember being a little bit startled. But actually, do you know, I haven't even contemplated the idea that I could finish this by ending my life I've definitely got the sense that this is awful and I want it to pass but I want it to pass by being over and getting back to normal and I, there was a real strong sense inside me that at some point it would be okay again and that was the only question that I didn't get top marks for um, <laughs> Which which enabled the GP to let me go home because I think if I um, got got full marks in the questionnaire, she probably would have had to send me to hospital for safety. Um, but it was really really enlightening because I knew about depression. I knew what depressed people looked like. I understood about low mood, and it didn't feel anything like what I had always thought it would feel like. And it was so humbling, such a way of learning, and. You know, I had tablets, I had therapy, I was off work for about five months. So I was probably sick for about 12 or 18 months altogether. But it was fascinating. And what was really interesting was who the people were who were available for me to chat to and who the people were who desperately wanted me to be better but didn't know how to bring themselves to a place where they could offer to help because their own helplessness was paralyzing them. And luckily, because I've seen it so often in people who are trying to support people in palliative care, I understood what that dimension was. And once I was well enough to want to talk to people, which I wasn't particularly interested in to start off with, once I was well enough to want to talk to people, I was able to phone people up and say, I do feel well enough to you know, go for a walk on the beach with your dog if you fancy it, and, and kind of tell them how to help me. Mm. Um, and. And that was really, really useful. But I think people are paralysed by the fear of saying the wrong thing to you and then you'll feel even worse. You, you can't feel even worse. It's, you know, well, I know you know. <laughs> you can't feel yeah. worse. You just, exactly, it just is yeah. the way it is. They're not going to make it any different, are they? 
sort of quite nicely moves me on to the, the next question, which is about um, the, the chapter in your book that kind of... when So when I was listening to it this week um, on the, the audio book... I was I, I was driving. Um, I had to nip over to Liverpool to pick something up for work, and I was driving back. and And um, I'm very much uh, the type of person who, if I'm preparing for something or I have an idea about something, I like literally have to stop and write it down, like at that moment, because I'm just petrified that I'll forget the amazing yeah. that I've had. And nine times out of ten, it's normally nonsense. Which the amount of emails that are to myself that are probably in the deleted box of my inbox would attest to that, I would imagine. But driving home, listening to the, the chapter about Alex, um, the, the young man with um, testicular cancer, which actually took place around the, the 1986 World Cup in Mexico, which I have to admit, when you'd said that they were watching the World Cup and it was in Mexico, and I and I, and I instantly went, that'll be 86 then. Yeah. And it placed it. I was quite impressed with myself with my knowledge. Yeah, very good, very good. Can you it, sing it, the song as well? I, you know, I can't. It was, it, I, I, what, what was the song? Because it said, was back home. It was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> you fair, most of the football ones are <laughs> for the World Cups. Um, but yeah, so that 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 chapter particularly stood out for me, and and probably for I, I didn't don't remember exactly what age Alex was, but he felt as though he was probably a similar sort of age yeah. to myself, yeah. a similar sort of background. He just seemed like a normal lad and you know, the, the other lads that were on the ward and it felt very much the type of thing, the type of story that sounded like the sort of thing I would encounter walking into a changing room of football, just the kinds of the normal back and forth you'd get from, from lads. And he, he kind of ended up in, in that ward over a, a, a long period because it seemed to be drawn out of being embarrassed about speaking to his GP about some physical issues. And we've spoken a few times on this podcast about men not engaging with healthcare, both physical and mental. Yeah. From your experience, is that a, is that a, as much a common thing from your side as it appears to be from from? Oh, from yeah. It, yeah, and, and particularly if we're talking balls, which we are talking, not just footballs now. But <laughs> so, so, so Alex had a testicular cancer, um, and that is, the, there are two things that are really important about testicular cancer. One is, that it happens usually in younger men, late teens up to early 30s. Um, and it often starts with a swollen ball on one side, might be sore, might not be sore. Um, and then it kind of shrivels down a bit. And it might feel a bit knobbly. But if you're not checking regularly, you won't know what's your normal. So you won't know what's your abnormal. So, you know, girls are brought up to understand about examining their boobs at least once a month. We need to get men looking looking at their scrotum, feeling their balls, mm -hmm. noticing what is normal for them, and then they will notice what's not normal. Anyway, Alex had had this swelling. And the second thing that's really important about testicular teratoma is that it is almost 100% curable. And that's unusual in a cancer. We've got very high cure rates for a lot of cancers now. But you don't want to be dying of something that's completely treatable. So testicular teratoma, very, very treatable. You do have to have the offending testis removed. Uh, some lads go in then and have um, a, a, an artificial testis put in so that their scrotum still balances and it's got the right kind of 
weight and wobbliness and I can't tell you the number of artificial balls that I've had to examine over the years from lads who think it's funny to see if the lady doctor can spot that they've got an artificial ball. <laughs> so all of that. Um, but Alex's story, was it was important to put it in the book for two reasons. One was that Alex is unusual in that he died. Let's, you know, spoil spoil the ending. Um, but he died because his disease was responding so quickly to the chemotherapy that actually where there was a big um, wadge of tumour in a blood vessel, the, the tumour melted away faster than the blood vessel could repair itself. And so he bled, which is pretty awful for his mum and brother who was sitting by him but he was completely unconscious and didn't didn't know anything about it um but the the other thing that's important about alex is that kind of set of emotions that he went through that he was terrified because having cancer is a terrifying diagnosis so actually if he hadn't been terrified it would have told us that he was a bit stupid but he was ashamed of being terrified and that was the reason that his story needed to be told because when he came into hospital to have his first lot of chemotherapy he met the other five guys in the six-bedded bay where he was going to have his treatment and they all came in every three weeks regular as clockwork and the following week there'd be a different six who were on a different cycle and the third week there'd be a different six who were on a different cycle again and so they would go around and they all looked like each other they were bold, they had shiny heads, they all just talked non-stop about football, mainly, World Cup, um, Maradona and the Hand of God incident, you know, everybody's blood pressure went up, what can <laughs> I say? Um, and all of them who were on their second and third and fourth cycles of chemotherapy knew what it was like to be the lad who still had his hair who came in for the first time, and they were so lovely with him. To just say, you know, hello, mate, and which side is it on? And are they see you right in here? And you know, they were. And when when I'm behind the curtain, clocking him, checking his chest, getting his drip up, and all the rest of it, they started to talk extra loud on the other side of the curtain to just kind of help him to know that they weren't listening in to what he was saying to me. And what he could hear was that they were playing cards and they were messing on and they were talking about the Liverpool team and there was some stuff going on, some interview with Butch Wilkins on the telly. And he just thought, they're brave and I'm a coward. And he just was weeping, rocking, trying to be silent so that they wouldn't hear him crying. But they'd all been the same and they all knew that was what would be going on inside those curtains. And, you know, it was kind of like a rite of passage. After that, he would be part of their team. And those lads all look after each other. A lot of them are still in contact with each other now because, of course, in the main, they get cured. Yeah. Um, they come to the clinic afterwards. They introduce you to their girlfriends who become their wives. They bring their babies to show you. The babies all look exactly like they looked when they were born <laughs> during their chemotherapy. Um, so testicular teratoma, swelling in your testicle that maybe gets bigger or gets smaller seems to have gone away but the bull's left being a little bit hard if you don't do anything about it it spreads next up the lymph nodes um 
at the in your back up alongside where your aorta is coming down through the back of your abdomen. So those swollen lymph nodes press on the inside of the spine bones. So a lot of young men with teratoma actually don't mention the swollen ball and then they end up with backache from this spread into the lymph nodes. So they end up seeing physios and orthopedic surgeons and they think it's a sports injury and this and that and that really delays the diagnosis and the longer the diagnosis is delayed the further the, the cancer has spread inside their bodies so it's really important to check balls regularly and take anything that's unusual to the doctor nobody nobody will think that you're being funny or being silly because there's a variety of interesting things that can go wrong in that scrotum it's quite a complicated little thing um, most of them are very easily put right but if it's a testicular cancer you want it caught really really early yeah i think that's i think that that message is really you know from it from so i i have not had anything like that but i went to i had a, a, a another sort of personal issue which was with the the back rather than the front and it was it was one of those things that went on for a while that I kind of put, I think what I did was that I just ignored it for such a long time that I felt like, well, it can't be anything because I wouldn't, surely I wouldn't still be alive if it was something. Do you know what I mean? It was I kind of. That's such a good way of coping, is if it's really serious, I'll die and then I'll know that, it, that I should have gone to the doctors. Yeah, which, damn, that's brilliant. Which was, which was clearly a ridiculous thing to do. To do. <laughs> But I eventually, I eventually got to the point where I was in, I was in so much pain that I just had, I had to go to the doctors, uh-huh. and I went to those. I think I, I, I remember thinking, God, do I want it to be a fella or do I want it to be a, a female? Do I, yeah. I don't know if I wanted a male that as well? Yeah, I just couldn't work out which way was worse or better. And I think in the end, I kind of went with. I think I was think I was thinking, would I rather a female friend see my ass or a male friend? And I think I went with male friend, and it was a a, a male doctor who opened the <laughs> opened the door, and I was like, yeah. right, okay, that's fine. And then, so anyway, it was it was I, I had to have a couple of operations, but it was purely a, it wasn't anything serious. It was just a, it was a something that needed. I can't even remember what they called it, but it was it was quite easily sorted. Yeah. But I was kind of it was one of those things where I'd kind of it kind of gone on for a while. I'd never really t- spoken to anybody about it. And then I remember mentioning that I was in hospital to the lads who were in my WhatsApp group, and they were they, they it was kind of those you know back and forths and all the rest of it. And then eventually one of them went, "No, in all seriousness, like are you all right?" And I was like, "No, no, like I'm sound, it's fine." But and then one of them said, "Just messages when you're out, so we know you're fine." And it's been a running joke for about two years um, for various different reasons, but. The fact that one of them, like one of them and the, and, and the all responded just saying, "No, but like in all seriousness, are you okay?" Like that, it, it kind of reiterated that, and and we we spoke about it the other night with regards to something else. But it, your friends are your friends for your for a reason, yeah. and they do. They, you know, I, I, as I put it to one of one of the lads, I was like, "If you're willing to go to match with me every week and listen to some of the shit that I shout most of the game, <laughs> you must like me at least a little bit. So you're probably <laughs> going to be okay if I tell you there's something up." Um, yeah. And I often wonder, I, I, and it's probably true that, that that type of thing is 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 a masculinity thing. Do you is that does that come across in your workplace, or do women kind of have the same types of issues as well? 
But I think girls grow up talking about their bodies because, you know, their bodies change a lot more than boys' bodies do over over their teens. Maybe maybe that's not the right thing to say. Maybe it feels really huge for boys, the changes they go through. Um, but, you know, particularly I think because of having periods and later because of having babies, girls have conversations that are quite biological from quite an early age and they'll talk about you know how uncomfortable it is having a period or you know what an absolute pain it is or that they'll compare the different products that they use to look after themselves during the period and on those sorts of things um and when they have those conversations you can remove boys and men from the room in seconds simply by starting that conversation. Um, so we don't really know whether lads sit around and talk about how they felt when their voices were breaking and, you know, how it feels to start to have hairs in places that they didn't used to have hairs and, you know, body muscle mass changing and stuff like that. But the sense I get as a medical person is that men don't really take very much notice of their bodies unless they're asking their bodies to do particular things. So if they're training themselves for a sport, they will weigh themselves or measure themselves or they'll measure what they can lift or they'll measure how fast they can move with whatever sport it is that they're doing. Um, so that's the way they, they, they look at their body as what my body will do for me. And I guess one of the things that a woman's body will do for her under the right circumstances is bear a baby. And that's so absolutely amazing. But that is a thing that we talk about beforehand with trepidation um, <laughs> and talk about afterwards just as a way of getting your brain around the fact that it happened and, and you survived it, really. Um, so, yeah, I think boys neglect talking about health in a way that girls probably don't simply because they're faced with bodily changes you know, like every 28 days from around the age of 12 you can't pretend it doesn't happen and one of the one of the other things in that in that particular chapter that i thought was was really interesting was they the, the lads in in that were on the ward referred to um they were referring to things like the ballroom and and, and that sort of thing and using like yeah. gallows humor really to sort of you know broach those sort of difficult situations which yeah. i think i think personally i think is a really it can be a really positive thing that, that that i think i think lads do particularly well is to to laugh at things that seem as though they're difficult but then on the flip side it almost excuses you from actually having to have a conversation about it that you use humor as a deflection how do you think people can sort of find the balance between the two things? I think that's a great question. So it took me, because I'm a stupid girl, <laughs> several weeks to work out why this room was called the Lonely Ballroom. Why, it's only the, it was only the same as the other six-bedded bays. Why did they call that one the ballroom? And why the Lonely Ballroom? Oh, lonely ball oh yeah okay because they've already got one ball by the time they get there um so so i was really slow and they knew i was really slow so they would make jokes and they would make these kind of geordie scousers can't get our jokes jokes as well um just to keep me on my toes 
And I know that we in palliative care, we use gallows humour a lot. And, you know, soldiers who are serving, who are who are in hot zones, use gallows humour a lot as well. And it's one of the ways that gets you through a moment that you need to get yourself through intact, isn't it? You can talk about this thing using humour to get you to the other side of it. Because um, at the moment you're going into battle or at the moment you're having your drip put up for your chemotherapy, you actually feel that you want to just focus on the task in hand. But over the course of serving in a war or over the course of having your treatment for your cancer or over the course of dealing with your profound depression, there have to be some places where you actually take stock. And at that point, you need to drop the humour in order to be able to talk about it. doesn't mean you can't talk about it genuinely with some humour in it. But you're absolutely right. You can use humour to bounce and not actually confront the thing that you, you need to talk about. Coming to sort of families and, and friends of, of patients who are, who, are, who are dying, do you find that men and women deal with that process differently as well? A little bit. There's a, there's a little bit of um, role differentiation, I guess, is what's going on. So um, when when I'm looking after teenagers and young people, um, dads and mums deal with that slightly differently because there's something about I should have been protecting him that both parents feel, but which particularly I hear from dads. Um, and you know, I, 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 I grew him, and now I'm watching him die. Coming from mums is is profoundly poignant and moving. Um, but no, once it's really, really happening, men and women, they bring their different selves to it. But because we're different from each other as individuals, rather than it being a masculine way or a feminine way of doing it. And I think one of the things that we do in palliative care quite a lot is give people language and tools and permission to have those quite emotional conversations and generally try to have that conversation with somebody, with their beloved people around them so that everybody knows what everybody knows and everybody knows that everybody's sad and everybody knows what everybody else is worrying about. So when they go home, they don't have to carry on pretending and uh, so so one of the stories in the book is is about a much older couple um where the, the, i was sent to visit them at home because the the lady had ovarian cancer and she was very very nauseated nausea was one of my specialist areas um and this husband let me into the house and he was whispering as he let me in are you from the hospice <laughs> and he took me in the front room and he wanted me to promise that I wouldn't tell her any bad news because she didn't know what was wrong with her and if I told her it would kill her. And that's a bit awkward really because she's my patient so I, I can't not answer questions that she asks if she asks them. Um, so, so what I said to him was, look, I, I can't lie to her but I will, I will answer the questions if she asks me, but I won't push information on her that she isn't asking for. It does, does that sound safe enough to let me go into the bedroom and see her? And he wasn't really sure. He took me upstairs. Um, I said hello to her, and she, she sat me down. There was a chair by the bed, 
and he's kind of hovering because he was obviously terrified I was going to say something <laughs> I shouldn't say. Um, and she said to him, you haven't made the doctor a cup of tea, so go, go and put the kettle on. So she sent him down the stairs, and as he was going down the stairs, she says to me, I don't know that he understands what's going on here, and I haven't got the heart to tell him. How, how do I tell him that I'm dying? Okay, this is this is now really, really interesting. So what's going on is this couple have been married for 60 years, love each other to bits. I've been through some really difficult things together, including the death of one of their sons in a coal mining accident because they lived in a County Durham coal mining village. Um, and she said the way they dealt with anything difficult was to talk to each other and to look after each other. This was the first time they had something difficult to deal with that they didn't talk to each other about. And as she was telling me about the son and how wonderfully her husband had supported her as she had supported him through their grieving, she started to cry. At which point he arrived back with the tea, found her crying, saying, you're upsetting my wife. And I thought <laughs> it was going to throw me out the window. And she said to him, no, she's not upsetting me. She said, where's the biscuits? Go and get some biscuits. <laughs> she sent him back down the stairs so we could finish this conversation. And so when he came back up again, and she was a little bit calmer, you know, and I thought, well, what am I going to do now? Because she knows, but doesn't think he knows, and he knows, but doesn't think she knows, and he's going to punch me if I say anything. <laughs> um, and I just said to him, Listen, I, I, your wife is just telling me what a fantastic marriage you've had and how you've both always looked after each other when anything difficult's happened. Tell me about your son, Kevin, and that great tragedy that's happened to you both, and, and that's why she's tearful now. Um, and actually, she's worrying about something and feeling a bit lonely in her worry. And, and it's something that you talk to me about downstairs, and I know that you're lonely in your worry. So I think I'm going to go downstairs now, put the kettle back on, and leave you two here to just have this conversation. Um, so we can make people very lonely, can't we, if we don't allow them to talk about their worries and their concerns. And we think we're doing it for the kindest of reasons, but actually it's a little prison that we're putting them in. And you said that it was the book that you'd been waiting for somebody to write for your whole professional career. Why specifically did you feel that it was so important to write it down and, and, and put it out in that format? I think that the process of dying, which interestingly we haven't talked about at all, is such a recognisable process that if people understood it better, they would be less afraid. And I went to medical school, I didn't know anything about dying. And then I got taught for five years how to stop people from dying. That's what doctors do. Yeah. And nurses go to nursing school and they get taught how to stop people from dying. And, you know, pharmacists go off to pharmacy school and they get taught how to use all of the best drugs with the least interaction so nobody dies and everybody gets the best treatment. Nobody's talking to us about dying. And if I had been able to read about normal dying and that there's a process in the same way as, I mean, I guess the whole world knows about the process of giving birth because there's called the midwife there's one born every minute there's stuff in magazines you know we, we talk about this stuff and you know men who 
haven't had babies and whose partners haven't had babies still know that there's a sequence of events with contractions and waters breaking and you know, it's too early to push and then it's time to push and then there's quite a lot of screaming and then there's a baby um, and that midwives prepare the couple in advance so that there are no surprises on delivery day why why aren't we doing that about dying why are we not saying okay here's a here's a process that as we get more weary towards the end of our lives whatever the illness is we just get more tired um and we need to sleep more and you know if you're in your 50s and you're dying of heart failure that will be happening to you and if you're in your 20s and you're dying of cancer that will be happening to you and if you're in your 90s and you're just getting a bit worn out that will be happening to you and it's normal and it's okay and you have to sleep and when you wake up again you've got a bit more energy um and as time goes by as you get closer and closer to dying instead of just falling asleep we dip in and out of unconsciousness and that's the point at which we know we need to get family around if, if they want to be there and if eventually the person is just unconscious all of the time with this um the brain is now almost entirely switched off. The only, the only bit that's still working is the bit that drives people's breathing. And people don't know about these breathing rhythms. So they hear these funny noises from dying people and they think the person's in agony or drowning or sighing or groaning. When in fact what's happening is that during the bits of this automatic breathing cycle where it's quite deep, um, People will tense their vocal cords without realising it. So as they breathe out, they'll make a noise with their voice. And family might think they're trying to talk unless somebody like a midwife, only doing it for dying, like a death wife, is there saying, no, this is normal, this is fine, this is just, this noise is just the vocal cords moving. She isn't trying to speak, she isn't groaning. She's completely unconscious. She's not capable of feeling discomfort at this stage. Um, and at other parts of the cycle, the breathing might be faster, but shallower. And that would sound, you know, a bit panty. And you might think the person was gasping for breath. So again, you need that death wife, that experienced person who's seen this before, saying this is this is normal. Um, and the thing, the noise that really upsets people is the noise they call the death rattle, which is actually when there's just a tiny little bit of fluid in the back of your throat, and you're breathing in and out, and the breath is bubbling through this fluid. Now, if you or I had a little bit of fluid in the back of our throat, you know, if, you're, if your cup of tea or your beer goes down the wrong way, as soon as it touches the back of your throat, you cough and you splutter and you gag. And the point is that an unconscious brain isn't feeling the back of the throat anymore. And so it just lets that fluid lie there. It's not causing any problems, not interfering with the breathing, but it's making the breath make a noise. And so there's these cycles of breathing, deep and shallow and fast and slow and intermittent clicking and bubbling. And an experienced deaf midwife, the person who's seen it lots of times before, will be saying to the family, oh, this is normal. And yeah, this um, the fluid at the back of the throat, that clicking sort of noise, that tends to me now we're down to the, the last little while, the last hours or so. Um, so in the hospital, you might say to the family, it's probably not a good time for people to go home now if they want to be here to the very end. They're very unlikely now to wake up again. Um, but we do know from people who've had head injuries and being deeply unconscious that some people can still hear voices. They can't make out what's being said, but they can, they're often calmer when the right people are in the room, for example. 
So keep talking, keep chatting to each other around the bed. Let them hear that you're here. I give people tubes of hand cream. Say, so, right, here, I'll give that into your dad's hands or they are his shins look a bit dry. Give his legs a rub. So that we're there, we're touching, we're talking, we're accompanying. There's nothing we can do to help, but we can just be there. And then there are pauses in the breathing and sometimes quite long pauses before the next breath. And then eventually just, well, there's a breath out that doesn't have another breath in afterwards. There's nothing particularly special about the previous breath. It's just, it turns out it was the last one. It's no more dramatic than that. And that's definitely not what happens on the telly or in Hollywood. So it's not what anybody is expecting. So I wanted a book that told stories that just showed what normal dying looked like so that I could be a bit more confident at the bedside of dying people, that I wasn't missing something, that there wasn't something I should be doing that I was forgetting to do. And so if I wanted people to understand what normal dying is like, rather than writing a textbook, I thought if I write a book that's just people's stories, and it is just stories, isn't it? It's just about people living at the end of their lives. And a little bit, it's about dying. But it's mainly about how amazing people are and what they do and how much they love each other and how precious being alive can be. And that seems to me to be the message because we are all going to die. It's not as bad as most people probably think. Won't be your best day, <laughs> but it won't be your worst day either. And I think that's something that we don't really think about. Anybody who's had a baby has had a much more uncomfortable day than the last day of her life is going to be, for example. And, you know, whatever the illness is, if we get the symptoms sorted out early, early on, which I guess is a bit like the antenatal care, isn't it? Making sure that the mum and baby are, are well enough to do the, the labour and the delivery. Then the symptoms won't be interrupting this gradual, peaceful descent into unconsciousness. If somebody keeps getting horrible waves of pain, that will wake them up again. And it slows the process of dying down which is a really interesting thing to talk to families about. So you want to take somebody's pain away, not so they die faster, but so that their dying isn't interrupted by periods of being uncomfortable. And were you surprised at all at how well received your book was? Absolutely astonished. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely gobsmacked. I just didn't expect this at all. I've had letters and messages from people all over the world been invited to go and talk in some really really interesting places um because of covid this week i'm i'm not in canada but that was another really interesting trip i was invited to do um but the thing that's been really lovely is the number of letters from people either saying what you've described is exactly what i saw when my precious person was dying but I, I thought we were lucky and that they had an unusually lovely death. And I can tell other people now, because I've seen it, that this is what it's like. Or lots and lots of letters from people saying, I was really traumatised by what I saw when my beloved person was dying. And I thought that they were in agony and I thought they were drowning, thought they were groaning. And a, a lady wrote to me just a, a couple of months ago. She said, now, now I've read your stories and seen what you've described. I realise that you've described exactly what happened to my mum. And she actually had a five-star Hilton death. She was, she was unconscious. She wasn't uncomfortable. And I've been worrying about it for years. And, and now I feel okay. So, yeah, we've got to do something about that. We, 
people need to know, don't they? So that when we're beside our people that we love as they're dying, we're not traumatizing ourselves with these kind of misinterpretations of what's happening to them. It's, it's sad enough that we've got to say goodbye to them. We can't make it not be goodbye. But at least we can stop ourselves from being terrified by misinterpreting what we see. And you you mentioned there about perhaps the way that the death is portrayed in in Hollywood and and, and on TV programs and, and and that sort of thing. Firstly, sort of how sort of badly portrayed do you think death is generally in in sort of popular fiction? Oh, well, I think. In novels, it's pretty good because novels can dis can take a long view and they can talk about the process of people dying. But I think in anything that's a, a, a an audio visual medium, death is usually being used as a plot device to get some people who are around the deathbed into the next scene where they're confronting each other about something. So the writers don't really care what the death looks like. They just need it to be over with. So they will make it short. They'll make it dramatic. They'll have people clutching their chests and, you know, sitting up and telling people at the last minute that they were adopted or, or whatever it is. Um, and when soap operas try to do good death storylines, the, the difficulty they have is people drift off and put the kettle on because normal dying is, is, is gentle and peaceful and that's not what you watch EastEnders for, is it? Mm-hmm. So last year, Corrie did um, a young mum dying and their plot was fantastic and they, they did it really beautifully and faithfully and it's been the first proper normal dying plot line that I can remember on a British soap opera. And, and this matters enormously because people, we don't realise that we learn from the telly, but we do. And I was in Peru in November and. Um, they had very, very low kidney transplant donations. And so their two most popular soap operas in the first six months of last year did storylines about kidney transplants where somebody somebody died and donated their organs or somebody who'd been waiting for a transplant for a long time, their, their life was transformed by being given a transplant. And the organ donations in Peru doubled just because the public got it that this is a thing that we can do and it makes a difference so soap opera plots really do matter and souping up death so that it's dramatic and exciting and entertaining but inaccurate is a thing that we really have to worry about because it gives people a belief that that is normal when it's just not one of the stories in, in your book is about uh, one of the the doctor. You called him the, the leader, was that right? Yeah, yeah. And he uh, it reminded me a little bit of Lost, I have to admit. Um, but he he, you were talking in, in in that chapter about how honest they were being with um, the person who was who was dying, and I think a lot of that comes down to sort of communication and and, and that sort of thing. Do you think? Possibly one of these things that's that's influenced the way that we sort of talk about that is because maybe there's an issue with communication because we're now more involved in detached forms of communication, such as, as I say, talk on the phone, and, and we do say this whilst on a, on a video chat. Um, but do you think that maybe plays a part in it? That's a, that's a really interesting question. I suspect 
we probably don't have conversations in the same depth, do we, when we're having, or particularly when we're having texting conversations, we're giving the text conversation intermittent attention um, and sometimes just enough attention because we're actually preoccupied by something else. Whereas when we sit down with a person and have a conversation, we're giving each other our, our undivided attention and maybe with a video call, that's a little bit better as well. I mean, I, I can certainly remember um, getting phone calls uh, from my kids when they were at university and it was completely clear that their attention was on something else and they were <laughs> phoning home. Um, I think with, with video calls, it's a little bit more obvious that the person is also watching the Xbox at the same time isn't it? Or, or whatever. Um, but no, I think the thing about watching that conversation where where my first boss described the process of dying, like I've just described it to you, to to that fantastic French lady, um, they already had a very good rapport with each other because they were both fluent French speakers and most of their conversations together actually were in French. And that conversation was in English because there was a nurse and me also there and we didn't speak good enough French. <laughs> so um, they had that trust with each other. But I've had that conversation since with hundreds and hundreds of patients and I've always say before I start listen if, if this just gets too much at any point you just stop me and nobody's ever stopped me nobody one one guy's wife tried to throw me out of the house and he told her to just be quiet because he was listening um but no no person who is dying, to whom I have described what dying will be like, has ever stopped me. Usually what happens is at the end of the conversation, there's this kind of pause, and you can see the person relaxing. And then they say, oh, don't think that's what everybody's expecting in our hands. Will you, will you say that to my wife? Or will you tell my kids that? I think that's just so much better than what we were expecting. And what's nice then is, of course, you can say, well, I tell you what, rather than me telling them, why don't you tell them? And I'll be here as your backup. I'll be your wingman. Um, because that gives me a chance then to hear whether what they heard and took in, because it is quite a lot of information, whether they've taken it in completely or whether we might need another couple of runs at it. And usually I also say to people, okay, so I, I told you that and you're going to have to think about that. That's a lot to take in. But you know, next time you see your Macmillan nurse or your, um, your cancer nurse specialist or whoever it is, check out with them as well or come back to me if you want me to say it again. And here's a leaflet with it written in too, um, just so that you're getting your head around it as a process. And once people know that actually they're not going to be awake during the period that they're taking their breath at the very last part of their life, and they're not going to be shouting and frightened and in pain, and that their families are not going to see something terrifying, because people are really concerned about what their families will see. That's a huge gift to be able to give somebody, and now they can get on with planning all of the other stuff that they want to get on with, because that huge fear has been taken away. Working in that, in that environment would, I would imagine, would very quickly almost numb you to death is is that true or is it not something you ever really get used to i think people uh, traumatized people become numb you're right and soldiers describe it and paramedics describe it and sometimes 
you know, doctors and nurses describe it. Um, so I think once people do start to feel numb, that is a warning sign. Um, and I don't think I've ever not been emotional at a bedside. I'm a terrible crier. I am an awful crier, and I have to I have to say to the medical students, listen, uh, if you come in a ward round with me, I'll probably cry at some point, but it's okay. I, I, you know, it won't get to the point where I can't speak and the patient's having to blow my nose or something like that. It's not going to get as bad as that, but just to warn you that that might happen. Because I never get through that conversation of, for example, describing what dying will be like or how we will look after your family at your deathbed while they're looking after you. I never get through that conversation without tearing up. Because it might be the, you know, seven millionth time that I've had that conversation with somebody, but it's the first time that this person has ever had that conversation. And it, I guess it's the same as when you watch midwives delivering babies. They've done it hundreds and thousands of times. But they still have a lump in their throat as they show that mum and that birth partner, this baby, this gorgeous, spanking new life that they just produced. It's amazing. And working with dying people, it's it's amazing. People are so resilient and so so full of the life that they've still got left to live. So in palliative care, we would watch out for each other looking like we were taking shortcuts or uh, looking as though we become a little bit desensitised because that would be a warning bell that somebody wasn't well. Um, but if they were to be often to get better, they would come back and bring their emotions back with them. So I, d I don't think it is normal that people become numb. And certainly in my in my whole career, that was never my experience. And I probably worked alongside somewhere between 10 and 15,000 people at the very end of their life. That's a, that's a lot of dying people. Mm. Um, and, and, and I don't think at any point I ever felt this is overwhelming, I can't do this. I always felt that there's something we can do here that enables people to live this last part of their lives well and and with their own individual flair and that's a fantastic thing to be able to do i think one of the big things that as you say that you're obviously trying to convey is that death isn't as traumatic as people would imagine it to be but i would hazard a guess that amongst that there are obviously exceptions to that and there are traumatic events in mm -hmm. you know in your role how do you how do you deal with when it is traumatic? Because I would imagine that even though, as you say, you are used to people dying and, and that being your role, when it's traumatic, it, it must still be a bit of a shock to the system. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely true. So one of the reasons I put Alex's story in was because it is it is shocking what happened to Alex. Um, I, I sat down trying to do some sums, and I thought, so if, if, you, if you say as an average, maybe I've worked with, around 12,000 people towards the end of their lives and I can think of maybe a dozen deaths where I thought oh this is this is really tough this is hard I wouldn't want this to be happening to somebody that I love so statistically it's a very very small number now if you're the person it's happening to or you love that person it's awful isn't it yeah but it's very rare, so that's the first thing. But I knew that I couldn't write a book that respected the um, 
the ratios, because that would have meant putting no difficult death in the book, instead of which one out of 30 is unusual and difficult. And there's a fair amount of suffering, emotional distress or physical distress threaded through the other stories as well. And I felt it was important to be transparent about that. But it's unusual for us to be at a deathbed where somebody has overwhelming pain, for example, or dreadful breathlessness. And occasionally it happens. And when it happens, it's another reason why it's so important to work in teams, that people can take turns at the bed, that we're working with each other to think, what can we do that's going to reduce the amount of distress that this person is experiencing? Sometimes it's about the position we're nursing them in, and it's a it's a nursing solution. And sometimes it's about whether there's a different drug that we could give, and it's the pharmacist or one of the doctors that comes up with a a thing that we can try to to help. Um, and then the other thing that I've always done since I was a medical student was if I went home and I couldn't get something out of my head, I wrote it out. So I would I would write it onto a piece of paper and. Um, it was I would only allow myself one one sheet of A4, um, but it means that I've got forty years worth of <laughs> people who I've looked after with no names written on them, of course, because it was before um, before everybody had computers. It's all on paper, so in case I ever lost it, couldn't ever have names on. Um, and it's a fantastic set of reflections. Now I go back to it, and now that I'm kind of older and I know more, some of the things I wrote when I was younger, I can see now what was happening that I couldn't see when I was that medical student or that very junior doctor. And I can also see sometimes what I could have done better or what somebody could have done differently, you know, with hindsight and experience. Um, But writing it out has always been one of the things that I've done about for stress busting. And, you know, you're talking about men's health, writing things out. Is, is a really good way of getting rid of the thing that's echoing in your head. Um, and, and a lot of people find that just keeping a diary where two or three times a week they write the difficult stuff down so that they don't have to keep tabs on it in their head. Um, and also then to write things that we're grateful for. And there's some really great research that says that if, you, if you sit down three times a week and just look back on the day and think of three things that you're grateful for that happened that day. That's a stronger mood changer for people with depression and low mood, um, kind of moderate depression and low mood. It's as good as using the, the modern antidepressant drugs, just gratitude three times a week. Mm. Very, very powerful. The CBT element of it, you... You qualified as a, a cognitive behavioural therapist in the, in the 90s. Yeah. And you created the, the CBT clinic for palliative care patients, which I think is really interesting because I suspect a lot of the time when people are dying, a lot of people think about, as you say, friends and family and how it's going to affect their lives and what happens after death. What was your motivation to create something for that was kind of mental health-based for palliative care patients the thing that's interesting about dying people is that they're just like everybody else Mm. um and once you've got past the stage of i really wish i didn't have this illness and i really wish i wasn't going to die of it 
and you know I'm frightened and I'm sad and all of that kind of adjustment thing um you then come out the other side of that into well I'm still here now and I'm not dead yet and I still you know love my family and is my team ever going to get sold and will we ever get back into the premiership or you know whatever it is and those things become your concerns again and so the the belief that all dying people would be sad and depressed is 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 very very wrong i mean there, there's a higher proportion of, of depression in people who've got serious physical illnesses but that doesn't make it normal and it needs to be treated but when you go to mainstream psychiatric services for help the difficulty that they got is that they're trying to help you to deal with a set of thoughts that unlike people with depression outside of a physical illness where a lot of lot of your thoughts become overly negative in cognitive therapy for or managing depression for people who've got you know very serious physical illness and they're saying and you know one of the things that's really difficult is that I'm going to die it's not like you can test that thought and find an alternative to it that is the actual truth mm. so I was intrigued by watching uh, a physical health cognitive therapist working um, on, a, on a liaison basis in one of the hospices where I worked. And I thought, I, I would really like to know how to be better at managing the emotional distress of our patients. Um, so I did a six months attachment in a psychiatry team, and that was really, really interesting. And at the end of it, the consultant there said, I think you'd like this cognitive therapy course that's about to start, you have to fill in an application form. She gave me the application form. She said, uh, closing dates tomorrow. And I went home and I read the application form and it was written in psychological speak. I just didn't understand the questions on the form. So I, I kind of made it up as I went along. And then I got interviewed by a group of people who said, well, wouldn't you expect your patients to be depressed? I said, no, no, really, I wouldn't. I would want them to be not depressed. Um, and it was an absolutely fantastic training for a year. Um, and then when I got back to the hospice, using it with hospice patients, the thing that I discovered was that they got better really quickly. They got better much faster than the poor people who I'd been practicing on from a mental health setting during the year that I was doing my postgraduate cognitive therapy training. Um, and of course, that's because these people haven't got depression because, you know, like I, when, when I became depressed, I, I had bog standard depression, not because something terrible was happening in my life, but for whatever reasons people get depressed, the chemicals in your head go wrong or, or whatever it is. Whereas these patients in the palliative care setting who become depressed, it's like, They've got so much that they're trying to carry and then there's one more thing and the straw breaks that camel's back. And when you start to use cognitive therapy, which is such a lovely model of help, because what it does is teaches people how to notice their mental processing and rescue themselves. So you don't do cognitive therapy to somebody, you do it with them and you teach them to be their own expert. And they get better so quickly because you're just putting them back in touch with the resilience that they've had all their lives. So it's a fantastic thing to be able to do. And the first couple of patients I, I was visiting in their homes, um, invited by the community 
palliative care nurses. And once they saw those first couple of patients get so much better, then they started making a few referrals to me and then some GPs made some referrals and then the cancer centre started referring. And it, and it was fantastic. It was so lovely. It was the favourite bit of my week doing my cognitive therapy clinic and meeting these people working really hard to sort themselves out and get themselves well again. And I particularly enjoyed working with um, teenagers who were referred from the city's uh, children's cancer services. So um, people over the age of 16 who can consent as adults are allowed to be seen in adult services. So I had a um, little bunch of 16 to 24 year olds and they were just the best. I just loved working with them. You also started the, the CBT first aid training for your palliative care colleagues, is that right? Yeah, that was a good thing to do. That was really good fun. One of the things in the clinic was that I started to realise that some of the time I was doing full Monty cognitive therapy like I'd been trained to do. But a lot of the time, there were very similar manoeuvres that were helping people to notice a particular thinking trap that they were falling into or a particular way of coping that they developed that actually they thought it was going to help them, but it kept tripping them up. And I thought, you know, we've got really skilled people in palliative care, nurses and physios and OTs, they could help their patients with this kind of stuff. You don't need to go away and do a diploma in cognitive therapy to be able to do this. So we set it up as a research project um, and got some research money from uh, the Marie Curie Foundation and trained 20 people in cognitive therapy first aid and evaluated how they got on and evaluated how their patients got on, demonstrated that it was useful. Um, and that's the thing that's gone on now. We've got um, people who've had cognitive first aid training all over the UK. And in fact, we, we ran one of the um, one of the courses that we ran. We ran at the Liverpool Marie Curie Centre, and uh, one of the clinical psychologists from Platterbridge Hospital on the Wirral came along to be one of the trainers there. So, well, we've got a smattering of them over there where you are in the northwest as well, and it's just been a great thing to do lovely to be able to give people the tools to just be able to do something a little bit extra during their normal jobs they're not setting up a cognitive therapy clinic they're being a physiotherapist who's trying to help somebody to learn to live a new way now they can't move their legs anymore for example and the cognitive therapy techniques are some extra techniques that they can give that person to help them to encourage themselves and set themselves goals that they can enjoy achieving and, and, and feel that they've got some control back in their lives so I, I love it really love it it's uh it sounds amazing it sounds like one of those really sort of forward-thinking things that kind of almost encompasses that thing that i think a lot of people would like to see a bit more with with um lots of different types of treatments in terms of treating people as a whole if you know what i mean and and and, and getting that ecosystem all those things are linked together aren't they you're you're absolutely right and the thing is that if a bit of your body is broken which is a physical thing you respond to it emotionally and you're thinking about it and it's that kind of interplay between how you're thinking what that does to your emotions what that makes you do or stop doing and what your body's doing physically all of those things are a mishmash and if you, you know it can't perhaps control what it is that your physical health is doing, but you can control your responses to it. 
And that's what cognitive therapy teaches people to be able to do, to choose a way of responding that helps them to be, to adapt more to what it is that they're trying to deal with. Welcome back. You're listening to Man Marking Podcast. That was Dr. Catherine Mannix's interview. Um, just want to have a bit of a, an after interview discussion with you both now. And, and I'm going to start with you. Obviously, the, you talked about the theme there was learning to talk about death, which is arguably one of the most converse, difficult conversations you can have. And I mean, we use the hashtag here, where's the talking lads? And just listening to that interview, what did you take from that on, on how you can approach a difficult conversation? It was the it was the realisation that asking about it doesn't show a lack of empathy. It probably shows more, doesn't it? So I think when you when you do talk about these things and you, you know, people do it in their own little ways don't they people normally go oh do you want a cup of tea and that that's that's fine that's fine do you want to talk about over a cup of tea and you know i think she mentioned there you know normally most people go for a pint and stuff and you know probably could do with moving away from those kind of things but i think when you when you're in these topics it's really difficult you know it isn't mentioned i remember times you know with family members who've who've passed away if you know, it wasn't really mentioned and we did treat life as normal. And that does serve a purpose to itself. You know, it, it, it's, it lets them have a bit of normality and, and keeps them going. Um, but there will be times where, you know, they need to, to open up as well. And, and there'll be times where you want to know what's going on. And, and that's not prying and it's not being, being too intrusive. It's probably caring. Like I said, it, it probably is more empathy because you want an understanding as well, because as, as much as, as they're going through it, you're going through it as well, particularly if it's a, a close friend or a, or a family member. So it's, it's, it's massive. And I, I think the, the way Catherine puts these things across is it is refreshing. It's a, it's, a, it's a completely different take on it. It's like, well, let's strip it back. Let's not be scared of it. It's a thing that happens to, to everyone. And it's, it's a thing that's going to come. And I think I, I like the, the points you made about, you know, people dying with cancer and, you know, they haven't lost that battle they've they've won that battle and it's a thing that's happened to them that's going to happen to everyone else you know they they won that battle they beat that battle and they've lived alongside a a really destructive disease so i think like i said yeah i think the overall point is for me that i took from it is just refreshing and it's, it's just a nice little 180 flip of how to look at these things absolutely yeah i think she she somehow puts a positive spin on death without Without it sounding like you're just going, oh, yeah, you'll be all right. You know what I mean? Where it's got no meaning or background. She actually makes you feel quite calm when she's talking about it, which I think is a very rare skill. And sort of something I wanted to touch on with you, Dan. I mean, Catherine's completely in control when she's talking at all times. She's almost got one of them really lovely, soothing voices that would be on like a meditation video or, or one of them sleep apps. And there was a bit of the conversation which really stuck out for me where you touched on, I think it was the time when your mum used to run OCD classes um, when you were growing up and you were quite intrigued by it. And it, it came apparent to you that people who have a mental health condition or probably true for physical disabilities as well, they often become quite marginalised by society and probably feel that they become a little bit defined by maybe their own mental health or whatever they're going through. Mm. And Catherine told a story about she was actually blindsided herself by depression at a stage in her life. And I felt like that was a very poignant part of the story because it showed you that even a medical professional, someone like Catherine, who seems very in control at all times, 
that it could happen to anybody. And I imagine while you wouldn't want to wish it on anybody, it probably you take a little bit of solace that a medical professional is not sort of um, immune to, to these things. What did you think when she was telling you that story and, and what can we sort of learn from it? Yeah, that's very true. I think with regards to, to how she, she sounds and what have you, it's, it's very much the, the bedside manner side of it, isn't it, for, mm. for, for someone who's, who's done what she's done for so long. And, and, and you could imagine that in a, in a scenario where people are dealing with death and dying and, and grief and, and all those really difficult things, to have somebody like Catherine or you know one of her colleagues there with that kind of ability to empathize and and explain things clearly and concisely to them must be really comforting at such a difficult time and yeah you're right there about that right that it it doesn't discriminate and we've we've touched on this a few times that there isn't you know as much as we all would you know I think there's this perception of mental health that it happens to certain people and it doesn't happen to other people and you know I'll be okay because you know x y and z in my life but it happens to everybody. It can happen to anybody at any time. And I think that's what people need to be aware of and need to be vigilant of. And Catherine said that it wasn't such a, an extent that she felt like she wanted to take her own life or anything like that, but she just wanted it to stop and she wanted it to go away. And it took her, as you say, as a medical professional, it even took her a long time to understand what was going on, to spot the signs and to feel as though she understood her own mental health. And I think what we can take from that is... Keep an eye on your friends, keep an eye on your family, keep an eye on people that are close to you and spot those signs of things that are changing and, and that they're doing differently and, and that might be kind of indicating that their mental health and their mental well-being is not as its strongest. And then taking the lessons of what Ant just talked about there, about approaching difficult sub- subjects and situations and talking about them would be just ask, just ask the question. If you think something's going on with someone, I feel like a lot of the time we go, well, I don't want to ask just in case I pissed them off or I don't want to ask just in case I upset them. Just ask the question. Are you okay? Genuinely, or are you all right? And then and that, there's always that thing, isn't there, where ask again, ask twice. Yeah. Say, honestly, you're all right. Like, it's fine. It's fine. Just, I just want to know. You're okay. And, and, and 99 times out of 100, people might just go, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I'm just having a shit day. Say, oh, why? what's happened? And then it, when they go, oh, well, this happened and that happened and fucking the bus was late and then oh, and then I miss me connecting train or uh, this is just my mornings most of the time. But, <laughs> but them just unloading that then just gets that off their chest as well and they're not carrying it around all day. And we do talk yeah. about extremes in terms of mental health. So depression, anxiety, suicide and things like that. But there are also those day-to-day things that we need to look out for for our mental health because they're like death by a thousand cuts you know, mm-hmm. if you keep letting it build up, keep letting it, you know, pile on top of yourself, then eventually it will become too much and it will become overwhelming. So let's tackle those little things with people that we, you know, those little battles that we can win. And it might help later on down the line. Because when that person has something that they really need to talk about that's really serious, if you've opened up an encouraging open space for them to talk, then they're probably more likely to open up later on down the line because they think, oh, well, I'll talk to so-and-so because he was he always asks if I'm all right, if I'm feeling down or something. So they, they're someone that I can confide in and trust. So, yeah, I think ultimately, as we always say, open those doors. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't discriminate. It can happen to everyone. It doesn't matter how strong you think that person is or how capable that person is. They still may be suffering and, and you know, just you asking the question could could make a massive difference. 
Absolutely. And without embarrassing him, it's something Ant is really good at, always asking how, how people are when spotting the signs, which I think is, is good to have somebody in your close circle who can do that. Obviously, a lot of what Catherine talks about is when somebody is facing the inevitable, um, the terminal and that process, the final days, the final hours. Now, I actually took a, a, a lot out of what she was saying and I've subsequently listened to a few other interviews she's done and she explains things like the death rattle, um, she explains sort of the final processes and actually it's a lot more peaceful and actually put your mind at rest a little bit when you think of loved ones you may have lost or people you know have gone through these things. For me, uh, grandparents stuck out for me um, who maybe final days towards on the outside looking in was disastrous but on reflection may not have been as bad as we first thought. On when when a death occurs, especially in a family or to a close friend, as well as being calm for the person directly involved, there's also a lot going on around you, especially if it involves your family, because obviously your parents may be a bit distressed, siblings, other family members. So it's hard to focus and tell yourself, this is all right, this is natural, isn't it? What can we take from what Catherine said to maybe become more comfortable with death, but it's simply... Um, I think you can only kind of do it from experience. From my experience with, you know, like a, a loss in the family or a, or a friend is, is literally going through the whole, you know, five stages of kind of grief thing. And I think that's, that's difficult, but it comes at like different, different times. I remember lost a friend who I went to uni with a few years back and I remember playing five-a-side football. And then I remember standing at the door to go home uh, to get in my house and I was like, got a text off Danny and Danny went, look, mate, I know you're going through something, you know, just gives a shout. Like, I can see that it's affected, yeah, the way you're playing football and stuff. Not that I was playing badly or anything. You could just tell I was running around and you could just see it on my face, I think. And uh, that's difficult. Like, it is, it is hard, but I needed that time to go through it. And I think it is just about understanding it's not gonna I think someone said you'll never get over it you'll just learn to cope with it and when someone said that to me I was like I don't really understand that I was like well you're never ever gonna get over it you just learn to deal with it so you learn to kind of accept what happens and I think that's that's hard I think from where Catherine's talking as well again it just comes back to to what Danny's touched on Um, you know get talking to each other and and allow a bit of time, you know, if you do need that space, have that space, you know. And if if, if you don't, then don't. I think in that conversation, um, and she has in the office where she says, oh, I'm sorry to hear about, I think it was someone's dad dying, I think. Um, and then the other colleague says, oh, I can't believe you mentioned that. Actually, before that, the, the colleague was saying, well, yeah, look, we'll just have a cup of tea and I'll, I'll talk to you about it when I want to talk to you about it. That's fine. That's exactly yeah. what's meant to happen. And I think that puts everyone at ease. If you go, oh, there's this massive elephant in the room, mm. there's not much space to do anything then, is there? It's just really hard. So I think once you address it and you you get hold of it and you say, look, we'll, we'll carry this together, then it just becomes a lot easier. And I think from my experience, that's that's where it's, it's come from. My issues have never been around dealing with, with others, passing away or, or losing losing a life it's it's more my view of, of what will happen so I, I often I think I've tried to explain this to you before I've tried to explain it to a, 
to a couple of people, doctors and, and therapists. I explained it to one doctor and he started talking to me about space. And I was like, I don't think you understand what I mean, mate. Um, but yeah, <laughs> it was, um, so mine's kind of like, I'm already scared of, of that, like end part. And it makes me so anxious and, and it just ruins everything. But I, it's when I'm, you know, it could be at any time. It could be, you know, when you're going to sleep or stuff or, you know, when you wake up or, or when something like, you know, someone passing away, someone dying. Um, and when that happens, that, that's really difficult because often what you're trying to do is empathize with people. And I think that's a good thing. But then sometimes you get lost in that hole of empathy and you've got to go, right, I've got to move on now. I can't just stay in their shoes. I can't just stay in, in that environment and i think that that becomes a, a lot more difficult particularly for me at, at, at times and then i think uh, yeah it just gets a it gets a lot harder so it, for me what i what i've tried to do is 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 open up and, and talk to people about it and just try and relax about it so listening to, to catherine talk about this is actually that's why i'm saying it's really refreshing because it's actually someone who knows a bit more about it and knows a lot more about it rather than going to, let's be honest, people don't really want to talk about it. People don't want to have that conversation about oh, what, what happens when you die. Well, no one really knows. But no, you know, there are people who know the processes, which I think helps a lot more. So uh, there was also an interesting point in that, that interview where Catherine's talking about, you know, I couldn't pick the right type of socks to wear. I've yeah. done that. I, 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 that, was, that was one of the things when I thought there's something not right here because I'm trying to pick a pair of socks and I'm going, well, if I pick that pair of socks, will I have a good day? If I pick that pair of socks, will I have a good day? And I'm like treating it like a sliding doors kind of moment. And it's like, you're thinking too hard here, your brain's in overdrive and yeah. it's those little signs. So if I go to the drawer today and I'm like, oh, I'm struggling to pick a pair of socks, just take a bit of time and have a little bit of, a bit of luck, whether that's go for a run or meditate or, or, or do something like that, just something else to help you. I love how um, spotting the sign for Danny was that you were running at football. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's a bit of a mad one. Yeah. No, what you're saying is true, Anton. I think um, if you listen to what Catherine said, I can't remember if this was in the interview with Danny or a different one I listened to, but she says people don't even like saying the word death. And even no. then, when you were first explaining it, you were saying that end period, like you weren't comfortable yeah. even yeah. saying the word. And I think that's, exactly what Catherine's saying isn't it it's, yeah. it's an inevitability that we all go through um, and I think be, that's how we've got to see it I think for a when I I think it was it was last year I struggled really badly with it and I started trying to like in my head I was like projecting it I've got a young kid and I'm just going I'm gonna have to explain that to to you at some point and I was like I was like you too don't have to do that for a, for a very long time and I don't have to do it right away and it's just when you're in that like mode of like or like period of time in your head where you're going, I'm all over the place here. I'm spinning too many plates. I'm, I'm putting so much stress on myself. And you take it out, you take away the stresses, and you're like, oh, I can relax now and I can enjoy actually being around. And I think that that's when I talk about being selfish. So if you are selfish, you look after yourself. That will help others. So it's not really being selfish. It's just making the you know making sure you're okay yeah it's like to, um, sorry go on Dan. i was just gonna say 
Uh, and you're going to have to explain to him what it means to lose at home on a Tuesday night as a Tramier fan <laughs> first before you get to death. But what's, um, <laughs> what's interesting about that, though, Ant, is you just made me think back to, did I ever actually have that conversation? When are you actually told in your life? But then it's always done in little ways, isn't it? Like, yeah. fish dies and it's gone to fishy heaven, or yeah. your dog or your cat and it's gone to the farm. Like, we're introduced to it really early, just in a... a like a, a bit of an act, isn't it? It's like to yeah. not upset you. And I I often have to, this conversation with, with my girlfriend, and it's you know she's not she's not religious at all really, and I I'm kind of I think he'd probably call me like an agnostic. I kind of like the good bits and don't really like the, the other bits. But um, I think that that's probably from my point of view. I couldn't really say it for anyone else. That's probably why people like that, sort of believe in that so much, is because there is a there is a going to be a, a period where well, there's going to be death and, and what happens then and I think that keeps people going and it keeps people keep you know happy <laughs> do you want me to say that I don't, I don't know if that's the right way but it, it's kind of an aim do you know what in, I, really in my head. I think when you take that away it's it's, you know, it's difficult like it's hard I really know what you mean there man because um, when my grandmother my mum's mum was diagnosed with terminal cancer she her whole life was a was a massive Christian. She went to church every week. She fully believed in heaven. She fully believed in God. And when she got a diagnosis, she was like, "Oh, my time's up." And she she was so calm throughout the whole period up until the last breaths because she genuinely thought she was going to heaven. Now I'm not remotely religious, but I can see why people like the certain aspects of religion because yeah. it does give you comfort in that afterlife, which is probably one of the to think there's nothing is and it's a whole different conversation i don't want to go down a rabbit hole but it was just a personal experience of the comfort in nature that religion brought someone in my family at the, the final moments and just as we we wrap up then dan it's obviously been another hard-hitting topic uh could you just signpost for anybody listening and uh, places they go or any charities and what we can lean on in these difficult times yeah absolutely so we always try and kind of sort of encourage people to go to places that are sort of relevant to maybe the conversation, the topics you can get the best help. Um, there's a couple of, a couple of charities that I'd like to reference you to. The first one's called the good grief trust. Um, their tagline is help and hope in one place. And they're a, a bereavement charity. Um, and they've got a bereavement helpline, which uh, runs 10 AM to 4 PM Monday to Friday. And the number for that is 0800 2600 and the other one is a child bereavement charity um, who operate in the same way. And they've also got a helpline and their phone number is 0800-02-8840. And they're called Child Bereavement UK. Brilliant. Um, as always, you can find us on all the socials. So our Twitter is marking underscore man. Uh, use the hashtag waste talking lads. We're now on LinkedIn as well. So if you do use LinkedIn, give us a little follow on there um, and engage with us on there as well. And also, just if anybody wants to listen to our episodes, obviously available um, on whatever you listen to this one on, but also um, Acast, Spotify, iTunes, and all the other places. Now, just going to wrap up um, with Catherine's quick fire, but you've been listening to Man Market. Um, what's been the most memorable thing that's happened since your book came out? Oh, gosh, it's hard to pick one thing. The whole The whole thing is completely unimaginable but perhaps I, I think one of the highlights for me was I got invited to speak at uh, the Hay International Festival in Arequipa in Peru 
And that in itself was just absolutely amazing. But as a consequence of that, I was invited to go and meet people who were volunteering to set up a palliative care team in the local cancer hospital. There's no palliative care in Peru. And they said, come and meet our volunteers. And I thought, I, I had a picture of British volunteers, you know, like people <laughs> who are retired and they're coming back to be helpful. And they're, yeah. yeah. No, what she meant was, here's our head of our pain service and here's one of our senior psychologists and here's three really fantastic nurses and a dietitian and a variety of physiotherapists. Yeah. These people are going to volunteer to go over and above the job they're paid for to provide a palliative care service as well. Will you help us to set up a palliative care service? Wow. People are just amazing, aren't they? Yeah. So that that was a really, really unexpected and fantastic thing to be able to do. What song do you sing in the car alone, but you'd never sing in front of someone else? I sing Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me by Elton John. And I do all the voices and all the falsetto bits in the car. If you could invite three people to a dinner party, who would they be? I'd really love to meet Einstein. Just sounds like a very, very interesting man. And I would invite, along with Einstein, my friend Glenn, who was a very lovely Canadian general practitioner who died of cancer about 10 years ago. And he and Einstein, I think they'd get on really, <laughs> really well. Um, and then we need another girl, don't we? Because actually we've got to, got to keep the power balance right there. So I think Jerry Halliwell. Oh, very good shout. That is a very good shout. Mm. I read Jerry, I think, yeah, it was. I read Jerry Halliwell's autobiography when I was in school, which was very strange. I can't even remember how I got hold of it. No. She's, a, she's, a, she's a very interesting woman, isn't she? Yeah, she's, a, she's brilliant. I loved it. Yeah. It was one of those things that, obviously, because I went to an all-boys all school that got a few turn heads when I was reading it. But no, it was... Uh, she was, there was, there was I do remember the middle cut out because she did some topless modelling when she was younger. And there was the picture was in the middle of it on the, the photo section. <laughs> which, of course it was. <laughs> which, which, when, which I didn't realise was in there until I got to it. And I remember actually opening that page and so I went, oh, I get why you're reading it now. And I was like, no, 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 I'm actually... No, I'm no, no, really, it really it's not. <laughs> <laughs> in, um, in a battle of doctors turned authors, who would come out on top? Would it be you or Adam Kay? Oh, Adam sold more than a million. He's got um, he's got some kind of gold award thing, but he's so lovely. And when he wrote his Night Shift Before Christmas book, he sent me a copy of it, and it arrived. Didn't know what this parcel was, and uh, when I opened the parcel, inside it was oh, what you'll be very familiar with, an, an, an NHS prescription bag, <laughs> um, and the label said. Um, to be taken as directed by Dr. K for patient Dr. Catherine Mannix. What the hell is this? Still didn't think of Adam K. We yeah. used to have a Dr. K in our own surgery, but he's retired, opened it, and here's this book. I thought, that's, isn't, isn't that nice of him? Because we'd met each other at a book festival about a year before. So that's really nice of him. Put it to one side thinking, you know, I'll read that over Christmas because it must have been, I don't know, 
October, November when he sent it to me. And then about two weeks later, people started tweeting about this link to your book. So now I opened the book and he's actually written a story about a time when he bottled out of telling somebody who asked him whether or not she was dying directly and he mumbled something and ran away. And we've all done it. And in fact, I've, I've written um, a, a blog post for Marie Curie that's the same story. And when it got posted, he wrote to me on Twitter and said, I, I loved your blog post. So actually, I'm just writing a very similar story from my training diaries at the moment because all of his books are based on his training diaries. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was the story he was writing. And then there's a little footnote telling readers, if you want to know more about this, read with the end in mind by Dr. Catherine Merrick. Well, and I had just wasn't expecting that at all. That was absolutely fantastic. So uh, in, in a battle between the doctors, I think it would be an absolute draw because I think mm -hmm. we would just get on so well again. But I, I realised my last two are a bit morbid, but there we go. Um if you were on death row and you had to order your last meal, what would it be? <laughs> it would be a bacon butty. A just you go straight forward with you on a, a roll want, or on bread. Right, no, I would want I would want a bacon sandwich on um, whole grain bread with proper butter, and the bacon would have to be crispy, and the butter needs to be melting, and I need a proper cup of tea with it. <laughs> Would you go any sauce or no sauce? No, no sauce. Bacon, melting butter, brown bread with bits in, <laughs> cup of tea, skimmed milk, but a lot of milk, please, just in case you ever need to make me that death row cup of tea. <laughs> I don't know what yeah. scenario is coming round when I'm making you a cup of tea on death row, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but who knows That'll be the next book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and then final question is, we've obviously spoken a lot about death. When you plan your funeral, what would you plan your funeral song to be? Um, probably Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me, actually. Oh, that is actually a really good choice. It is a song from my youth. It's a song from my formative years. And I've sung it in the bath and in the car <laughs> all these years. And actually, I think it's a really beautiful funeral song because it's about keeping the memories alive, isn't it? Yeah. But, yeah. Close the door.